The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. gripped by a desire to stretch beyond our limits, but often this can have unexpected consequences, and we might soon discover that mastery in one field does not avoid disaster in a neighbouring one. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and jar by the door, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This week's study covers Give My Regards to Broad Street, the 1984 musical drama written by, starring, and with music by Paul McCartney. My guest is writer and broadcaster Simon Garrier, and you'll join us in the cavernous halls of the Moorgate exit of the Elizabeth Line. Hi, Simon. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am good. It's a nice sunny day here in the north, and uh, I'm all set to talk Macca. Excellent. Well, what can you tell me about the Beatles' film career? Well, I knew their early work. Um, I'm a big fan of Help and uh, A Hard Day's Night. And in fact, I've been doing a bit of research into A Hard Day's Night. The author, Alan Owen, uh, who was a playwright, uh, seems to have had meetings with uh, David Whittaker, who was the story editor on Doctor Who, uh, in about 1960-61. David Whittaker mentions this in a couple of interviews that he gave in 1963. Um, And I'm researching the life of Dave Whitaker at the moment so uh, I had been looking at Alan Owen's uh, work from that time and I'm I've got a trip booked to uh, the University of Bangor who has his written archive to see if there's uh, any David Whitaker related bits and pieces but I watched A Hard Day's Night uh, only a, a week before you asked me to do this assignment so I feel oh. that Broad Street is kind of like a um it's almost like a sequel or an echo of that film, I think. But uh, we can talk about that in a moment. Yeah. I mean, um, the Beatles film career is... It's up and down. We have Hard Day's Night, which is universally regarded as a classic, uh, still tremendously watchable and very fresh and dynamic. Help, I found a bit more self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. And then you have Magical Mystery Tour, which is a filmed version of the concept of self-indulgence, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think, I also think that Magical Mystery Tour is, there are a number of odd things about it. I think it's a great album, mm, which yeah, I think I think is, is important because the music is really good and that, that actually buoys it up. But also... It's a completely different film seen in colour and in high res and things that you can do now. When it was broadcast, it was in black and white on people's TV screens on, you know, at Christmas. And that's a completely different experience to, to viewing it. it it's, uh, 
you know, it was kind of sold as if it would be light entertainment, a bit of fun for the afternoon, and just left people baffled. Mm. Um, whereas, having seen it on a big screen um, at a, a film festival, it's more like a work of art than a, you know, it's 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 kind of uh, what's the word? A um, installation. Yeah, that's exactly the word I was looking for. Um, and I find I find it really interesting, and it's full of things from a distance of years that seem really revealing. I mean, the coach party and all the uh, old dears going out on a trip and stuff seems like. I mean, at the time, I don't know. I don't know how much that would have struck people as as of interest, but now that feels almost like some kind of historical document, some kind of revealing thing about society. Uh, and about the class that these performers came from. Um, and I, f- I find it really interesting. Um, yes, it's odd. And yes, it was a bit of a a weird step for them. But then at the same time, they were talking about doing Lord of the Rings. They were talking about being in the Jungle Book to play the vultures at the end. They were talking about all sorts of odd things. And in that context as well, yeah. it's the most interesting thing that they could have done, I think. And there was um, the Joe Orton project, Six Arms to Hold You or Up Against It, or, or I think it went through a number of titles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's their individual projects as well. So, um, you know, if you watch Get Back, uh, the documentary, you've got Ringo off going, doing Magic Christian and stuff. Um, so, yeah, there's, a, there's kind of... There's kind of all of this oddness going on. And then, and then what... I don't think gets talked about very much. It's all the films that don't have the Beatles in. Um, so there are films about Beatles fans. There are films in which, you know, Yellow Submarine, in which other people play the Beatles. Um, so there's a kind of whole phenomena of material there. That's that's um, yeah. Some of it very self-indulgent. I think some of the Beatles fan films, you know, about teenagers trying to get to see them or whatever are just as indulgent absolutely um and and just as false as well because they're they're all kind of playing to a narrative about this band um Mm. but yeah yeah as you say a hard day's night is the is the one that that really stands up yeah actually speaking of yellow submarine one fact i realized recently in, in looking through this is the actor who plays the voice of ringo his brother was Michael Angelis, who took over from Ringo as the narrator of Thomas the Tank Engine. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah, and that there's there's characters uh, in uh, you, you kind of see that those connections. Uh, one of the things that I'm reading at the moment is uh, is um, John Higgs's book on the KLF, and he keeps making these connections between different bands and different art forms and different whatever about how um how kind of ideas spread and you see these kind of permutations of connection between different groups of people and you know the idea that you can get from the beatles to thomas the tank engine through uh, ringo star and then that opens up a kind of you know because hard day's night and things there's a whole sequence on a train so you know if i was being uh particularly pretentious i would kind of draw a parallel between the two <laughs> 
And there's a wacky sequence on a train in The Magic Christian as well. Uh, and we're about to talk about a film involving a train station. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, is there something about society as judged through its transport infrastructure? Um, uh, you know, discuss. <laughs> well, there's your next book. <laughs> um, but after the, the band split and the, the four members went their separate ways, they all had different relationships with film. Uh, John had starred in How I Won the War when he was still in the band. I think that's his only non-Beatles acting role. Um, Ringo made a number of films, but most obviously The Magic Christian, various others. George, I don't think, did any acting work after The Beatles, but instead he started his own film company Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and became maybe Britain's most important film mogul of the 80s. Yeah, that's it. That's extraordinary, isn't it? And and um, and that the output of handmade films is really interesting as well. There's some very very good, very odd films. I've that... covered multiple handmade films on this podcast: Water and How to Get Ahead in Advertising. Um, I mean, as as well as you know, there's so many classics. But those those two I thought were really interesting. Yeah. Um, and the rise and fall of handmade over a decade is fascinating i think yeah yeah there's a very good book on the history of handmade and what um dennis o'brien was up to and you know people's various attempts to talk to george on the sly about you know is this guy everything he says he is and stuff which i found absolutely fascinating um uh, i recommend that to your listeners i'll i'll try and remember to put in a link okay but paul long harboured an ambition of writing a film himself, not just working in film, but actually creating a film project from scratch. And this finally came to fruition in the early 80s, coming off the back of recording the Pipes of Peace album, yielded a very successful number of singles. He finally started to work on his film project, Give My Regards to Broad Street. Uh, He was going to write, he was going to play the lead role, he was going to do all the music. He wasn't going to direct... Um, the director is Peter Webb, I believe. That's right, yep. Um, one of his few credits, um, he uh, had previously directed for The Sooty Show and The Tomorrow People. Yeah. And this is his last directing credit. The thing this reminded me of um, is a year before, there was a small art house movie called Return of the Jedi. Oh, yes, I know of it. And that was directed by uh, a guy called Richard Marquand. And there are various accounts that it was really kind of... He was rather overseen by his producer, George Lucas. So although he's got the credit on it, I've heard... You know, I don't know the the veracity of this, but I've heard various people kind of say, yes, he was there on the floor, but it wasn't his film. Um, And I... I wonder how much how much Peter Webb is there in a um, a sort of executive capacity to fulfil what Paul McCartney wanted. Um, it does seem very much a Paul McCartney film. I can imagine that um, Webb was there to deal with technical issues. That he you know he knows how to light things. He knows where the cameras go, and. McCartney explains to him what he wants and he goes off and does the technical stuff while McCartney deals with artistic elements. Yeah, and I think I think 
I mean, the cinematography by Ian McMillan is really good. It, it, it's a very beautiful looking film. Yeah. Um, and bearing in mind that it's a beautiful looking film, largely shot in the drizzle in London, and everything's a bit grey and a bit dilapidated, um, that's actually quite an achievement. But I, I also think the self-indulgence of the film, you know, it involves his mate Ringo Starr, it involves his wife and Ringo's wife. Various people appear as themselves. Various celebrities of one sort or another have cameos in it, ranging from Tracy Ullman to giant haystacks. I suspect that there was quite a lot, having worked in this kind of thing, I suspect there was quite a lot of people suggesting lines, suggesting jokes, suggesting this kind of stuff on the set, because that's what happens. And because it's indulgent, you indulge those things. So I think right. I think quite a lot of the odder elements of it is... My my guess would be that I've, those are things that were improvised on the day or suggested and seemed fun. And that is a... I mean, you get that with this kind of project, basically. That kind of goes hand in hand. So, again, how much is the director facilitating that? How much is the director able to say, no, I think that's going too far, uh, or this doesn't make sense, or whatever? Um, yes, that that kind of having been in that sort of situation before of actors suggesting, oh, wouldn't it be funny if um, that was making my eye twitch as a producer mm. kind of going, no, just stick to what's written, please. <laughs> I do have to stick up for Richard Marquand, by the way, because unlike Peter Webb, he has actually directed other things that people have seen. Oh, yeah, I, d- I don't mean it in any, I don't mean it in any uh, uh, derogatory way. And I love that. No, film. no, no. And I think, I think, um, you know, he was a perfectly, uh, able as you say uh, at, at his, his previous works you know speaks for itself but my my suspicion is that where you know you can see the tension so, so there's a there's a um once upon a galaxy which is the production diary of the empire strikes back you can see the director on that who's much more experienced irving Kirshner, uh and much older and much more you know has, has a great sort of legacy behind him but he is struggling with this is George's project and and how much so what I all I mean is that the usual way of crediting a film for the director is a director's name film yes I think that's not something you could say of Return of the Jedi I think it's much more George Lucas than it is Richard Marquand and I think on this film it's a Paul McCartney film yeah it's much more of a, a for hire gig for both Marquand and Webb. It's not not to say that they didn't have any input. Because I, I imagine Webb was very heavily involved in, in as I say, the tech. Yeah, yeah, I, and I think but, I think I mean this is something that you get in any what we would now call franchise, uh, whether that's a Marvel film or a James Bond film or a whatever. You know, there, there, there's always the thing where they're oh, we want an edgy director to bring something new to this franchise. Oh, they've done something edgy and new. We better not do that and take the cut away from them. You know, that's that's a fairly uh, common thing. You know, think about Alien films or whatever else. And now that I think about it, what Peter Webb has been hired for is a film in the Beatles franchise. Yeah. Yeah, as you say, there is connective tissue with Hard Day's Night. 
which is very much a day in the life of the Beatles. This is a day in the life of Paul McCartney. Yeah. Plucky underdog, the millionaire, Paul McCartney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he just he just can't catch a break in his own dream. Yeah, where, where he's just signed a $5 million deal and the recording has gone missing and Ringo won't record it again. Therefore, they go and record a whole load of the songs from the... Oh, anyway... Um, yes, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Um, but it starts with Paul in the back of his chauffeur-driven car in the rain in a traffic jam, and he's scribbling notes, and Good Day Sunshine is coming on the radio. And Paul settles down, and he goes to sleep, and wakes up... Well, not wakes up, but he now imagines himself driving along a country road in a souped-up hot rod um, it's, got a, it's got, got a computer in it, it's laying out it's a narrating his schedule for the day so we've got the film structure set already and um, he's got a phone in there which is unimaginably futuristic for 1984 and those things those things so that the, the computer which has a sort of multicoloured CFAX type display of text um, which is at once massively retro now and yet also futuristic which I really like um, that's the sort of thing I'd put in a film now um, for my own entertainment but the, that technology both the, the car and the things inside it seem to be liberating because McCartney is driving himself whereas in real life he's stuck in a traffic jam and can't move which you know seems kind of metaphorical he's mm. got a driver he's got Brian Brown um, as his agent ringing him up and chasing him and harassing him and you kind of get the feeling that, that there's, a, there's a sense of being stuck and so this dream is that the car and the technology liberates him to do what he wants to do which is to go a bit fast and you know have some the wind in his hair and that kind of stuff um, yeah. but it's a fantasy there's no, there's no reality to any of it it's it's um and i think i think also the thing that kind of prompts this as you say they play good day sunshine which contrasts with the rain in london but also is about reaching back 20 odd years to a sort of golden age of the beatles and when he was young and creatively free um mm. and i think that's the kind of there there is a kind of um reflective yeah, and nostalgic sense of maybe, you know, something has been lost somewhere, I think. Yeah, it feels that way throughout the film, I think, with uh, so much use of, of Beatles songs and new versions of that and looking back on the past and the scene with Ralph Richardson towards the end and even visiting Broad Street Station. It's all it, all looking backwards. Yeah. And there's very little... Where the future is this board of faceless executives and John Bennett in sunglasses, these mean money men. Yeah. Always escaping from the present into the past. Yeah. I think, I think there's also a sense of something having been lost, um, that broad street, Mm. which was still open at the time, but, but they knew it was going to close that the music industry has somehow lost something that, that, that somehow there's something, um, 
purer in the music of the past as well. Um, I felt, I felt, I, yeah, I, I thought, I, I'm not sure how much McCartney was conscious of this at the time, but there is a sense of him not being happy within the industry. Well, he gets a phone call uh, to tell him that the master tape of his new album has gone missing. Uh, that one of his staff, Harry, had taken it the previous night uh, for delivery to the um, the pressing plant, but he's gone missing. So and there's there's some odd things about this. One of which is you should always back up. This is a thing as an audio producer. Oh. Um, <laughs> you should uh, always back up. the The idea that the master tape goes missing, yes, but surely you'd have the individual components still. Um, also, in response to this, he goes into a recording studio, bearing in mind that that master tape is the completed album. He then goes to record another song, presumably f- for the album, with Ringo. And Ringo says he's not prepared to re-record songs that have gone missing. Bearing in mind that what we see in that recording studio is then record a whole song with orchestra in a single take it doesn't seem like a lot of work to record a song i think the only excuse i can give is this is a dream within a dream yes um, yes but it, it's, we, we, it's we, very we, we, it, yeah it's cheating <laughs> it and it, it but but the problem is that that this missing tape which is the plot of the film who cares? Why, why does not having that tape mean that they're going to be bought out by this guy in sunglasses? Who is he? What, 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 why, why is it a bad thing for him to take over? All of that kind of stuff we're not really given. And as a result, there's no kind of um, urgency to any of what's happening. And I think that's, that's why, it, you know, that, I think ultimately that's why it's rather unsatisfying because none of it really holds our attention very much. Um, and it sort of strings along a, a series of songs, but it doesn't really add up to all that much. No, I mean, we're told that the tape is worth five or six million. Um, and as you said, the whatever contract they have with the, the money men dictates that Mr. Raff will take over the whole company at midnight if the tape isn't found because that's when the genie has to go back in the lamp or yeah you know yeah i think i think mccartney's um previous experience with contracts and uh, apple core you'd think he would look at the paperwork a little more carefully um but uh, uh you know maybe maybe that it's a satire on that kind of corporate dealing but Yes, that's, that is very odd. Uh, they're also worried about uh, Big Bob the bootlegger. Um, with whom, weirdly, Paul has a very cosy relationship we see later on. Yeah, so, so there's, a, there's a, an odd thing of Paul still being a bit of a man of the people who hangs around with dodgy guys you know that, that harry is a dodgy geezer bob is a dodgy geezer and and mccartney can negotiate these things and go for a pint with them and chat to them quite happily even as bob is clearly ripping him off or attempting to rip him off or seemingly to rip him off there's a flashback scene that then turns out not to have happened 
even in this dream. Um, so yes, that that that, and I think that's a kind of. I mean, there was there was a there was a sort of vogue for this kind of thing of pop stars being in with the criminals, wasn't there? There's like Phil Collins in Buster uh, from yes. a similar period and stuff, and I, I think it. My my charitable thing is that this is kind of connecting salt of the earth millionaire Paul McCartney to the the common man. Um, but yeah, it's it is odd. There are ways. I mean, yeah, I mean him being you know wanting to give uh, ex con Harry a second chance and meeting with him in a pub in Bermondsey for a friendly pint. That I can believe. And they, uh, you know, and they don't sign a deal. They do it over a handshake. It's all about honour and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, that's all very nice. But it is, it is odd. Yeah, there's, there's some things that, everything, the problem is, everything comes back to the fact, this is a dream that the main characters have it. So... Any sort of implausibilities can be easily explained away, but it means that the whole thing that winds up being inconsequential because there's no stakes. Because and, and, at the end of the day, he's in a car having a nap. And also, it's this extremely successful, extremely wealthy pop star having a dream that's actually quite mundane. And that's the thing that I've. It's the thing that I found so strange about the film is that he's bankrolling this himself. He's written it himself, he's doing the music, he's playing the lead role. He can do basically anything he wants within the boundaries of what's possible with his fortune. And his decision of what to do in a film where there are no limits is to make a film about a day in his own life. And that involves being stuck in traffic and being in... Dodgy. driving around and listening to the radio and yeah and being in warehouses and complaining about recording equipment and you know yeah it's it's and the the you know and he's late for his own dinner that kind of it's just yeah yeah it's very very odd um when when Bob Dylan made Masked and Anonymous he made something that was weird and elaborate and it was uh, uh, has a sort of oddly dystopian tone to it and it had uh, political undertones to it and it was something ambitious. Apparently it's dreadful, but it was at least, you know, well, I've got all these resources, let's do something interesting. Let's do, you know, let's, let's push the boat out. Um, and this doesn't really. Yeah. It, it, just, it just seems like a, a, a wasted opportunity. One, th- one thing I found entertaining was uh, the film had a support feature when it was released, um, which was Rupert and the Frog Song. Yeah, the Frog Chorus. Um, Rupert and the Frog Chorus, of course, yeah. Uh, which I have very fond memories of the Ladybird book. Um, but that has a lot more... I mean, obviously it's about Rupert Bear, but it's there's a lot more creativity in that. Because I, I think McCartney wrote that story as well. I th- yeah, there's also, um, I mean, that's also looking backward to a sort of golden age of, you know, safety in the past and stuff. Um, but there is, there are fantasy bits in this film. I mean, there's the whole sort of period drama thing at the end. There's the songs that's set in the 50s, which is quite interesting. Um, and and he does, you know, there are there are some 
expensive, lavish bits to this film, but it, but it's telling a story that's not, you know, there's, there's, there's barely an anecdote you'd tell somebody in the pub, you know. <laughs> I've, occasionally I have dreams that I think, well, that would be an interesting story, and I make a point of writing it down when I wake up, and they've been things like disembodied nervous systems on the surface of Mars or people giants peeping into bedroom windows and these are really elaborate things oh yeah that's an interesting image Paul just dreams about himself well but it's also it's also that thing that when you have an idea it excites you but is it going to excite anybody else and you've kind of got a as a as a writer you kind of explore that and kind of go is this just me talking about myself or is it is there something here that will yeah. speak to people that will connect to people and none of what happens in this film is very relatable you know I can see other wealthy 40 something rock stars watching it going oh yeah I had a day like that um, but it, it just yeah it's very whereas uh, the thing about a hard day's night is you kind of feel these are smart funny kids but the situations they're in the, the strangeness of ordinary life is something that we can all relate to you know we've all been on a train with older people who are a bit grumpy about you know our behavior or we've all been to a works do over drinks that's been a bit awkward and you know that, that and, and just wanted to escape and run away and go and play mm. go and wander around the park and stuff so that that's all sort of speaks to something in us um, and we, we get it. And they can do whole sequences in that, that film where nobody says anything because we understand exactly what they're thinking and feeling. Whereas in this, it's just... it, it Yes, it's, it is very odd. Um, I think it's very revealing and it's very interesting about McCartney at the time. But, yeah, it, it's not... Um, there's a lot... You know, for a dream, this is kind of one for his therapist, I think. Werner Herzog has said in interviews that he doesn't normally dream, or if he does, he doesn't remember them. And occasionally, once a year or so, he'll have a dream that he does remember. But it'll be something like making a sandwich. Or something okay. incredibly mundane. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why he has to go off and you know, make films in the Amazon and <laughs> jump into yeah. volcanoes and things. So he, has to, he has to do his dreams in real life and then dream about, yeah, yeah I went, dreamt that I was on a bus... And yeah, it yeah. was raining. <laughs> I, li- I like that idea that, 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 you know, the more fantastic the world that you live in, the, uh, the smaller scale your dreams are. And uh, I think that's quite mm. fun. Um, there are a few lines of dialogue I did like. Um, there's, a men- there's a mention of, oh, there could be oh, there are all kinds of complications we haven't thought about yet. Oh, like what? Well, I don't know. I haven't thought about them yet. Yeah. Which is, the, yeah, I think, yeah. goes back to that kind of. The, the the flip Beatles wit that we remember. Yeah, and uh, I mean, is this is all in the um, when they're having their meetings and stuff. I thought I thought the casting of the uh, the men in the room is quite interesting. Um, there's a whole you know Anthony Bates had um, just been in Tinker Taylor, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, Brian Brown had just done the Thornbirds. I think that's where they got him from. So what what's interesting about that is there actors from television uh, who have been quite notable on television and I wonder I was thinking about one of the interesting things in Get Back is the Beatles coming into their recording sessions talking about what they watched on telly the night before 
and stuff ah. that impacted them. So I'm kind of wondering if that's how McCartney went about casting. Um, that either he had his eye on people because he saw them on television, or when they came in for auditions, he was like, oh yeah, you were in such and such. Um, and then there, are, then there are people who, you know, you've got Dr. Leg from EastEnders, who hadn't been in EastEnders yet. You've got Christopher Elliston, uh, uh, who was later Burnside in The Bill. Um, so, so you've kind of got the, the, this sort of stalwart of British television uh, actors who were quite well-known faces. Um, but it's very male. Uh, in fact, I think it's nine minutes into the film before a woman speaks... Uh, and she's the secretary who says the car is ready, sir. Uh, and then the only other women who who seem to have any words of dialogue are Paul McCartney's wife, Ringo Starr's wife, and Tracy Ullman, who plays uh, Harry's girlfriend. Yeah, and, and, and it's it's so um, yeah that that does seem odd um, in in terms of you know it, it's a I th- I think the the thing is that that. It's so much Paul McCartney's voice that that all of the kind of uh, how can I put this without um, I I find it a really odd and uncomfortable space. And we were talking about handmade films earlier. And one of the things about Widnell and I is that there are no women in it. And I have heard it argued that that's one of the reasons it's such a dysfunctional world that everything is because there's no um everybody's kind of out on their own and there's no and that the lack of women makes this a a sort of unbalanced uh worldview uh you know that that i think there's the the, there's the mother in the in the uh in the farm who who doesn't care where they come from and stuff but but you know there's there's very very rare uh, a female voice in that whole film and I think that's something else here. You know, the, 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 what are the roles of the women? Well, Tracy Ullman cries and is upset about Harry. That's kind of it. Linda McCartney sings along with the songs and Barbara Black wants to come and interview them and Ringo invites her back to his flat, which seems not what you would do with a journalist. Yeah, um, it's, it, it is worth stressing that Barbara Black is not playing Ringo Starr's wife. She's playing Ringo Starr's love interest. Yeah, and, but it's, but yeah, you know, you wonder if they, if husband and wife had a conversation about, is this how you, is this what you do when a journalist asks to interview you? Just mm. oh, you come back to my flat and I'll pay, play you the album. N- n- no, um, <laughs> that's that's that seems like that's probably a catch. Yeah, I you know I have, in my experience as a journalist, I have been invited back to an interviewer's. Uh, subjects uh, flat, and it's not something you say yes to. It's uh, mm, that, that yeah. is that is crossing a line. I mean, I that's never happened to me, but yeah, I think I would know that that's probably over the line. It, it it's also how can you write anything? You know, you've got no objective distance. Then you've got no. Um, it's a, it's and it's a massive power. It's a, and that's the part of my issue with it is it's all said very casually, but it's all a thing about power, and I think that is actually what I find bothering about this film is the idea that McCartney is the powerless one, while all of this stuff is swirling around, and you go, no, actually, 
you're the one with all the agency here it's your album it's your deal it's your mates it's your film it can go any way you want it to there's no reason it has to go in this direction I, th- I think that's why I find it revealing and unsatisfying at the same time there are a couple of points um, at the end of Withnell and I Marwood goes off to be in a play you remember what the play is Journey's End which has an all male cast yeah yeah. Uh, that's also the play that Bruce Robinson got into which is how he escaped ah. that household and if I remember rightly the play that Bruce Robinson got into was directed by Eric Thompson oh. uh, Emma Thompson's dad uh, who, of Magic Roundabout fame and yeah. so it's Eric Thompson who kind of you know what I like to think of is Eric Thompson with his big twirly moustache as being the guy that um, <laughs> Paul McGann is on the phone to in that phone box um, and uh, <laughs> boy time for bed and that's what he's that's what he's hearing down the phone <laughs> well that puts a new complexion on who Brian is based on yeah 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 um, something else I was going to say I've forgotten now never mind so in the studio, Paul and his uh, sudden orchestra are recording some of his old songs. Version of Yesterday as Ringo is rummaging around trying to find the brushes to play with. Uh, and then and that, here, and there, that's, and, every- and that's odd because you could have done this as a montage of them recording and looking for stuff and looking for ways to make it sound a bit more interesting. But mm. what they do is they... They, they frame it as if this is all recorded in a single take that everyone plays together. There's no pickups. There's no, you know, they record it, then they listen to it and it's fine. And they do that even while Ringo is wandering around, distracting them, dropping things, falling over, doing his antics. And, and A, that's not how you record music. B, it's a really weird way to record music. You know, why doesn't, George Martin, who's in the gallery watching all this, kind of go, can we just... Ringo, could you stop that? You know? Um, as... You know, and you can see in things like Get Back how it's actually done and what they do and how they pick things up. And also, the problem is that, that yes, okay, so you want to have this illusion of this is how it's done. But the illusion that it's actually quite quick and easy makes the decision not to re-record the lost album all the weirder if you if this session showed how difficult it was to record a single song and they've got the prospect of having to re-record the whole album you'd have a sense of the stakes but the fact that it's so easy just makes it so weird that they won't do it let alone that the film then is a series of them record doing a whole load of song performances and you go well if that's just what you do anyway. Why Why not just re-record the... The film could almost be we've got to re-record the whole album in one day. Exactly. Quick, that's quick, it. that's let's, exactly let's what travel, Let's travel all over London and record all the individual musicians and, uh, and, and do their parts that way. And then there's a spine of a story for it all. Exactly. And... And then sort of frantically editing it together, and then and then it turns up at the last minute. And thought, ah, well, now we've got two of them. And, and you know, and we've got be... we've we've only got this studio for ten minutes, so we've got to record it in one take. Right, where can we record the next song? Oh, there's a place I know. 
oh i've got a mate who's got a warehouse we could get in there oh the sound isn't great what can we do let's put you know beds and Mattress, mattresses against the wall and it could and it could be you know, Paul McCartney having to go back to his rough and ready roots and exactly. improvise, and you know, yeah, he's, and, and he's, that's he's, a... he's on his he's on his heels trying to frantically get everything together. And the fact that he's rich and powerful is uh, it becomes more irrelevant when you're up against a really tight deadline. And and then it becomes about his invention as an artist, and it becomes about his skill and his ability to call in favors and that people like him and all of those sorts of things that that all the unconventional old ways of doing things yes and i think and as you say and the irony at the end that they find the album and you kind of go oh which one do we release which one's better and you could leave it on that and then there's a kind of you know Mm. frisson of the what what you've created and what what works and stuff but yeah, I mean, immediately right there, you've got a much more interesting and satisfying film that's about something, rather than this very odd. Um, you could, I mean, you could even with the with the music montages, you could cut between the different performers performing their parts in different locations. So you could have with the with the song playing as a whole, but then the individual musicians playing at different places, different times of the day almost to like a an ensemble fractured by space and time yeah yeah I which mean, would be visually the, quite interesting and unusual and and also just the fact that you've got a race against time there where they've got to be inventive to solve it rather than he just wanders around london you know and and the sequence at the end where he is driving around london and he goes past battersea on his way to no, he goes past Westminster and then Battersea Power Station on his way to Tower Bridge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of, that's that's quite a, you know, are you on the clock there? Is this a taxi dodge kind of, mm. yes, I've added on 30 quid to the ride. But it, it, yeah, so it's so full of, so full of things where you just think, oh, um, this could be better. Anyway... Um, oh, and something else I liked was that um, whenever Mr. Rath appears, there's a rattlesnake sound on the soundtrack. Yeah. Just so that we know he's bad. Yeah. It's a, a very, um, um, a, a, you know, bearing in mind that John Bennett, amazing actor, I don't think he speaks at all in this, does he? Or, or has very no, few he doesn't. Lines. He doesn't take his sunglasses off either. No, and, he, and, and uh, um, it's a very sinister, very straightforward villain role, mostly done by the fact that he's very still um i think it's a very effective bit of uh you've cut i think they've cast that very well um mm. it's just i agree it's just a shame that there's not um you know uh, you could have put in a thing that actually he loves mccartney and even though his buyout is destructive you could kind of put in that he's a fan he's trying to protect McCartney's legacy, and he thinks he can do that better than McCartney can. Yeah, yeah, or anything because like he's that. The one just who to knows give it a bit business. of business, just to give it a bit of a, you know, just to give him a bit of depth. Um, mm. And it's because because what does he represent? Is it's just money, but there's no sense the way, of that. You know, the way what, I saw the way I saw it is that uh, if he takes over, then that's McCartney losing control of his 
his his his creativity. He'll yeah. be a, uh, like indentured to make whatever music Rath wants him to make. Yeah. Uh, but it's that's that's how I read it, and I feel no, you can just say that. <laughs> you can just say that in the movie, and that's fine. This, I mean, no one's watching this expecting some great complex work of multi-level Kubrickian brilliance. You know, it is like an '80s version of "Let's Put on the Show" right here. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's the second song they play is here, there, and everywhere. And then McCartney wanders over from one instrument to the next and plays one of his newer songs, Wanderlust, which has a theme of starting over and uh, beginning... Yes, yes, starting over. But it's... A lot of the music It feels very reflective. It feels, as you said, feels very nostalgic. It's all looking backwards. There's nothing looking forwards. Yeah, and Wanderlust speaks of a restlessness, uh, you know, just mm. as a title. And there, again, I just think there's that sense of he's kind of... I, I think part of the reason that the villains are not very well realised is because there's a, there's a frustration with the industry and a frustration with what he's doing, but no real sense of what, what actually the problem is. Um, and this kind of this kind of idea exactly what you say there's no sense of moving forward i think is uh is basically the problem it's it's you know i don't know i don't well, want to say that he's got too comfortable because i hate that idea that you can only create something if you're uncomfortable but there's there's none of that there's none of that hunger you have to, to try you, you, i think later on in his career mccartney has i think become more Experimental, perhaps like uh, the the fireman, and then uh, McCartney three doing a, this lockdown project. He, he has become, I think, a bit more willing to to try something different, to try something fresh. And whether or not it's always succeed, whether or not it's always been successful, is another matter. And he can afford to have a few failures here and there. I think at this point he was quite locked into a specific type of music. The Pipes of Peace would come out after he'd shot the movie and would be very successful and that solidified I think what people think McCartney's solo work was like that it was quite bland and quite anodyne yeah it's very this is all very beige sounding music isn't it and 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 even some of the um re-recordings of Beatles songs you're kind of this is all it's all a bit bigger it's all a bit more orchestrated it's all a bit blander than the originals um and it's not music to I was I was thinking it's not a lot of this is not really music to dance to it's music to drive to yeah that's a good point it's um, it's less youthful and much more middle aged yeah 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 and kind of even some even something like Eleanor Rigby my, which is my favourite Beatles song the original even though it's this quite um you wouldn't think it was written by people in their early 20s mm-hmm. because it's so quite elaborate and it's about older people and it's about loneliness and it's about alienation in a way that they might not necessarily have experienced firsthand, but they've observed. Um, it has that sort of roughness, that immediacy that 
McCartney's solo work generally doesn't seem to have. It, it's also a story very concisely told, which mm. a lot of these pop songs are. They're short, and they kind of introduce an idea, explore it, and get out. And what happens in this film is they revisit Ellen Rigby, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. And having ra- raised the uh, matter of George Lucas earlier, I think you get that with Star Wars as well, where where the um, the original edits of those first three Star Wars films, as they were released in cinema, are very tight and punchy and exciting. And when he re-released them, he added bits to them that just slow down the pace and are not essential and kind of ruin some of the twists and revelations because you know who characters are when you know before time or or whatever um and so you get a a longer and more expansive version that's less satisfying so you get more and yet at the same time you're getting less and i think what in that big um sort of dream within a dream sequence of the with uh McCartney and his sideburns having a picnic by the lake it is that kind of thing of this go this just goes on far too long and what what's it for what's it you spent all of this money and what 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 is it adding what is it what are we getting that we didn't get before um the funny thing in 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 microcosm is that's part one of the parts of the film that I really liked because it was McCartney leaning into his strengths, telling a story through music, and if you were to just look at that as an isolated story, a little isolated 10-15 minute film I think that would work quite interestingly yeah. He's ex- expanding Eleanor Rigby into this sort of orchestral fantasia and telling a story purely through music with no dialogue and very visual as well that, that's something else that he could have tried I want to do like a do do like a silent film, which is all just just his music. And I I wondered, as I was watching it, how much things like that were devised to be broken up and shown on things like MTV, and MTV would yeah. have ten minutes of it, or, or you know whether that happened or not. Was that the thinking behind it? Um, you know, thinking about the sort of promos that. Michael Jackson or David Bowie or, or whoever else was doing at the time where you get these little mini movies that had a song in them um, I I don't know I don't know it, but it yeah again yes I, I, I see what you're saying but I, I, I did just kind of watch it kind of thinking this just goes on and what what's it for um, yeah I, I, as part of the whole it is indulgent but I just thought it was it was something that felt fresh. It was something that felt like an effort had been made to do something different and to lean into McCartney's skills rather than because I mean he's he's not a great screenwriter. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I think I think compare it to at the end of Magical Mystery Tour. Just you know, which is weird and all over the place and full of startling images. They manage to pull off an ending that is surprising. After you know, uh, it's full of weird things, and yet they still manage to surprise you by putting the Beatles in tailcoats 
to do Your Mother Should Know. And they come down the stairs like a Busby Berkeley number and stuff. Mm. And it's so... There's, a, there's an audacity to that because it's so unlike the Beatles and it's so, so out of nowhere. But it, again, it's a short song and you, you're on to the next thing. And that feels like, that feels like, like something new and exciting. I just felt the, the period drama thing was just kind of, you know, just... Too sluggish. It, yeah, too sluggish. And also like stuff I'd already seen. And yeah, it's... McCartney yeah, and Ringo in frock coats, but but also but also it doesn't reveal anything to the story, so it doesn't add anything to the um, the narrative of the of the film as a whole. It doesn't give him a sp- perspective on what's been going on. Um, it's just you know, I was dreaming, and then I had a, another dream because the first dream wasn't working out. You know, just. Maybe I mean, I mean I, I, it's a version of Inception I can get behind. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Um, there, he has these dream or fantasy sequences as well, all the way through, imagining what's happening to Harry. Uh, there's one sequence where he imagines it in the form of the Thirty Nine Steps, almost. Yeah. Of Harry being pursued across the moors, and I thought there's a you know, he, you know a film unit went out to Dartmoor and all these period costumes and everything for. 30 seconds of film yeah yeah my producer hat was just kind of well you know the guy who wrote it is paying for it so um yeah just i i yeah i I don't know i don't know i find it uh, but again because it's all filmed in the drizzle and the mist and stuff it's just it manages to be something that they clearly spent a lot of money on that looks like you know that's that those shots are comparable to what happens in the Tom Baker version of The Hound of the Baskervilles, shot for no money for the BBC in whenever it was, 1984. Oh, I've, I've, I've not seen it. I've not had that pleasure. But, you know, which is a, which is a, was made in the way te- telly was at the time, where it's fixed cameras in a studio with a bit of mm. filming on yeah. cheap 16mm, whatever. And has that, watching Broad Street, I've just had the same kind of, it's, that, that it's not as spectacular as um, maybe the money should have uh, should have paid for. Uh, Paul and his entourage head to the film studio to shoot a very elaborate video for his new song "Ballroom Dancing." Yeah, which I think was part of the whole rock and roll revival of the early eighties. It's very Shaken Stevens. Yeah, and, and that's, and that's uh, that. I thought that was interesting because McCartney had been there in the fifties. At the you know the end of the fifties, and he, rather than being nostalgic, it is a. Um, rather than being nostalgic, he plays up the fact that actually it was violent and difficult and weird, except that to show this you have a kind of dance sequence that is play acting all of that. Um, yeah. So all of that is very again very strange. And again, if you want to get into the gender politics of it, it's all very odd. I thought for a minute that when the two men start fighting over the woman, she was going to turn around and beat them both up. And that would be kind of the reversal on it. But no, that doesn't happen. Actually, what happens is some of her clothes fall off and then the men continue to fight 
and other people mm. so it's it's all a bit of a mess in terms of if you were if you were doing a a pop video you'd make a story out of that somehow that maybe the ballroom people would be the would be the violent ones and the punks kind of have to defend themselves or or some kind of reverse or some kind of twist on something and there's none of that there it's just it it just feels like there's no through line to any of it and and at the end they finish the song and then go for lunch or whatever it is yeah and and the 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 sides are revealed to be actors who are all actually chummy and put their arms around each other and stuff and it's kind of like oh so none of that meant any there, there was nothing there you know it's all it's all smoke it's an, it's another inconsequential fantasy inside an inconsequential fantasy yeah it's like a dream sequence except everyone else is all, all actually there but they they go for lunch and there's there's some visual gags of a judge having lunch with a showgirl and a vampire putting ketchup on his food and there's a man in a monster suit who keeps frightening people which I thought was funny just as a as a gag because I'm a small child and we meet Sandra Harry's girlfriend who's say played by Tracy Ullman I think this is this would have been uh, when would this have been in Tracy Ullman's career obviously pre going to America yeah, so she'd have been on Three of a Kind. She'd have been on Telly. She'd have been, um, you know, again a TV. Would she have been a Would she have been a name yet? Do you think? I think, but yes, not a, not a star. But 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 again, what what I was saying before about you know, is she somebody that McCartney saw on Telly? Um, rather than a, a film person. I think also, you mentioned the monster. Um, that's the monsters played by Gordon Rollings, who um, in A Hard Day's Night, he's the guy that spears, that, that Ringo uh, spears his lunch with a dart. So it's oh. a, another lunch gag. Um, and uh, uh, Gordon Rollings, uh, I, I know, because I recognised him because he narrated The Herbs. Um and he was a favourite of uh, Richard Lester's. He's in loads of Lester's films. So I think oh. that is a that is a conscious nod back to Hard Day's Night. But but yeah, all of that stuff in the studio that this is how films are made. You kind of are they? Is that what what are the productions that are being made? Um, it again, it's a very I mean, yeah, odd. It's a British film studio in the eighties. They're not making anything there. Yeah, yeah, and, and actually, what it reminded me of is that is at the time that's how TV Centre was portrayed. That that mm. you know the 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 reception of TV Centre would be full of people in all different costumes and things. And if you went to the canteen, it would all be the different productions sat together. So again, it's a very. Um, I just got the sense that it's a TV world put on film rather than a a film vision. Um, mm. And the Tracy Ullman stuff is really odd because, again, there's not exactly a, she's a punk, but she's in tears. That's the gag, and punks are supposed to be tough and difficult. Um, mm. yeah. And that that's it. That's that's kind of the character. It's it's not, you know, there's not a lot for her to do with it, and she's rather undeserved, undeserved by the part. Um, And yeah, I, I don't know. Again, I don't, what what is? I think the idea is that, that that McCartney is sympathetic to this person who seems uh, spiky and difficult, except that she isn't. 
Um, and I, there's a kind of acknowledgement when he goes off to sort her out that Linda McCartney is fine with this. Um, and it's kind of like, yeah, you go and help her. And again, it's just... They, it, it feels like there's not quite enough there that, that they're trying to say something or they're trying to raise something, but, but it's not really developed enough. Um, and at the same time, you've got the management coming in. And the management come in one door and McCartney and his team saunter out another door. There's no urgency to it. There's no chase. There's Somehow the Donald Douglas detective somehow gets ahead of them is then on the phone who's he ringing because they're in the same building you know it's, it's so odd so kind of um yeah they uh shoot the next uh music video after lunch while the, the roadie sits with sandra mm-hmm. uh to keep an eye on her and the the song is silly love songs which is it's mccartney mocking his own Reputation of of writing these silly love songs. Well, actually, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's the video is this weird, like Metropolis style sci-fi steampunk affair. Yeah. And then halfway through, a man dressed as Michael Jackson comes on and starts dancing. Yeah, he's um. Yeah, he's doing robot dancing, isn't he? Uh, it's yes, it's odd. It's also it's, it's, odd. It's, because I kept expecting the space monster to appear in it because they've set up oh, a sci-fi yeah. space monster and then they do a sci-fi thing. But no, that's not what that is. I was kind of thinking, oh yeah, if the the guy doing the robot dancing does a dance with the monster, you know, synchronised dance with the monster, that would be quite fun. No? Oh, okay. Um, and as you say, the, the, the look of it doesn't match what the song is about. And again, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not. It's not got anything I, to do. I mean, I mean, more than any of the. I mean, the other songs. I think some, many of them are thematic and and work. I think with the tone of what McCartney is going for. But this one is just no. Here's just another song. This is just another thing to fill time. Yeah, and, and it and doesn't. It doesn't connect dramatically or thematically with anything else in the movie. And I can see that if you saw that performance on MTV, you'd be going, um, oh, it's Paul McCartney. How interesting. Yeah. How odd. But within the film, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and there's nothing about, you know, you could have done stuff about, oh, it's somebody's idea to do something a bit different. And they're making up McCartney and he's kind of like, you know. Blame it on Ringo. Yeah, or... or or he's kind of like, yeah, I'm game for anything, or yeah, whatever you like, or it's your it's your vision, or, or you know, any kind of irony of that sort. Mm. But but no, there's nothing. Or, or even if it was Linda's idea, so that she's got something that she's contributing. Um, but yeah, nothing. It's it's and it's it's done, and then they're out and on to the next thing. Yeah, they head off to um, Shad Thames in. Uh... Uh, looking at its most grotty. Yeah, so uh, all I was going to add about the sci-fi thing is it, is it's notable in that video that Ringo's not in it. He's not made up as a space badger. Um, oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, He'd fit I think right even, in on Paladin. I, I wonder if even he had a line that, uh, you know, enough. <laughs> um, but yes, they go to Shad Thames. So they're at uh, Shad Thames. They're at Butler's Wharf. 
um, which had uh, uh, just been used for Doctor Who and had, had Daleks uh, there. Um, I was trying to work out the, the dates to work out which was first. I think Doctor Who might be in there first, but I don't think um, Paul McCartney would have been able to have seen uh, this production uh, on television. So I think it's a coincidence. Um, but I like the sort of synchronicity of it. And basically it's because it was cheap, because um, it was deserted and abandoned and you could go there and you get shots of Tower Bridge and the Tower of London in the background. So it looks like you spent some money. Um, I think what's odd about it is that you don't see much of that, really. It could, for, for most of the appearances in this film, you could be anywhere. Um, and they go to this warehouse to perform a song. Again, there's no sense of why. Um, it's, know, what... it's a rehearsal, we're told, but we never know what it's a rehearsal for. Why there, rather than anywhere else? I mean... You know, the proverbial church hall is fine, so yeah, why I, a spooky warehouse? And I think I think the reason for spooky warehouse is it takes McCartney to the East End, you know, on the periphery of the East End, which puts him in the yeah. zone of the dodgy geezers, which is Bob, played by Giant Haystacks. Um, mm. And again, Giant Haystacks was a wrestler on TV, a stalwart of saturday afternoons uh when i was a kid um he's another person plucked from popular television and put in this film um and you know i i I wonder if he was a favorite of mccartney's kids at the time um whether that was family viewing because it's such a an odd bit of casting but who knows who knows you know did had they met before uh, had they was McCartney going to parties of television celebrities where he'd meet Joan Haystacks and Tracy Ullman in the same building and maybe Dr. Leg from EastEnders and I, 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 it, it seems so odd either that that's what happened or that in casting he was going oh I saw this guy on TV what about him um, it comes to something where the making of the movie sounds more interesting than the movie well, yeah, I, I just—it's it, so. Um, there's a, there's a a sense of it all being done rather, you know, decision making over a cup of tea and a natter, rather than any kind of rigor. You know, uh, did any of these people audition? You know, all of that kind of stuff is is oh, almost certainly not. Yeah, it's it's all mates or mates of mates or people I fancy working with and stuff, which is very self indulgent. But you know, the. the, the Given the amount of money being spent on this movie, there's no great rigor in any of this, and that that you know, other, other uh, people may have given a more subtle performance or a, uh, uh, brought something to the role. That's not really what they're interested in with this, is it? it it's you know, people they fancy working with, um, and. Again, that just adds to that kind of stuff of none of this really matters. I, I don't think there are any bad performances anywhere in the movie. I think uh, the, the only potential weak link would have been Linda McCartney, who had, as far as I know, no acting experience at all. And she, her sort of position is downplayed somewhat. She, she's in the, she's in the Eleanor, Eleanor Rigby 
dream sequence where she has no dialogue. She doesn't she, you know, performs on a few of the songs. She doesn't have to do anything that's too much of a stretch for her. Yeah, I don't think anybody's um, bad in it. I think it's all just I, a bit. I do like. I do like all, Brian Brown. Yeah, I mean he's a very. Good, I mean there are some very good people in it. Um, I'm just not sure they're given very much to do. There's not. There's not very much to get. It's all a bit one note. Um, you know, mm. if if Brian Brown, you could make him tone deaf. You know, and, well, I, and he's very I like, good at his job, but doesn't like the music. Or there's a great well, bit well, with I, the, I, I, I like that element that he's he's the business guy. He's Paul's business partner. He knows he, he manages the business. He has no interest in the music at all. And the bit where they're waving off Harry and doing the sort of the jokey um, dance bit, he's just standing there, completely disinterested. Yeah, he yeah. Has no I, interest I, I, in the creative side at all. But he'll, you know, he's a good friend of Paul, and he'll do the money bit. I wonder I like, how much I like those, that balance. I wonder how much that was written and how much that's what he brought to it. Um, but it's it, yeah, it's it's all very odd. Uh, in just. Yes, I'd lo- I'd love to know how they made decisions about who they were going to cast and and where they found them. Um, anyway, um, Ringo mentions as they're in the the warehouse that they're practicing to be Canadians because it's so cold. And I, I I like that line, and um, they perform a few of Paul's more recent songs. Not such a bad boy, so bad, and no values, and they're all filmed quite flat plain filmed performances there's no i i was when i was looking at peter i thought oh maybe he was one of those early music video directors you know like um like godly and cream or russell mulcahy that he's he knows how to make this sort of stuff interesting and dynamic no it's just all filmed yeah here's a man playing guitar here's a man playing the drums yeah it's it's and they play three songs in a row yeah, we could. <laughs> if you cut out all the songs that don't advance the story, this movie would be an hour long. But it's it's all an excuse to have McCartney. You know, it's all it's a, for the soundtrack. To string along the songs. Yeah. So so the plot is kind of incidental to those things. But in between, you've got these cutaways to stuff going down, going on downstairs as people open envelopes and you know Bob is moving around and stuff. All of it not advancing the plot so it's kind of reminding you that there's a plot there but not doing anything with it it's again just sort of not kind of just treading water really yeah um bob's uh, truck is scraped as as they arrive and we only find later out on we only find out later on that it's bob's um and as the police are investigating they suspect uh, it was an insider who lost the tape and Suspicion seems to be growing around Harry. Paul flashes back to them waving off Harry the night before. I was saying, all right, oh, right, I'm off now to Broad Street. And Paul and his entourage, but not Brian Brown, say, oh, give my regards to Broad Street. And and it's a, it's a nice sort of mus- musical moment. I thought, that's the kind of musical element that we need in the movie. The movie can be about music. We don't need to have endless, boring videos. It, it's also It's also... He's got the tape in his hand, the, the tape box. So yeah. the idea that there's any mystery about where it went or who took it, you're, you're kind of like, well, we all saw him go and then he hasn't turned up. So where is he? Well, he said he was going to Broad Street. Maybe that's where we should look. 
Mm. That that seems quite obvious. The fact that this strikes McCartney as he's driving past Broad Street later as a big revelation. Again, it's just kind of plotting, mate. Plotting. He's um, not. He's not doing himself any favors by suggesting that he only just thought of it. it yeah, it's just. Anyway, anyway, you know, let's not get into that. Um, but Paul Paul also feels guilty about assuming that Harry is guilty um, uh, because this sort of thing is out of character for the former criminal but but it's 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 again that thing that that it's as much because everybody else has said are you sure about this guy so it might be that his faith in people is wrong um, that his belief in the good ne- the, the fundamental good nature of people is wrong but again that's not really It's not. It's not interrogated. Yeah, it's not very clear. You know, I, th- I think that's what he's kind of touching on, but it's just not very clear. Um, and then there's a kind of odd conversation between McCartney and Bob, where they're mates, but there's something very odd going on. Bob seems to be trying to blackmail him. Um, so it's it's slightly uneasy. It's slightly, what is this all about? But the implication from the flashback we've seen is that Harry did give Bob the tape. So at that point, we think Bob has got it and is blackmailing him. This later turns out not to be what's happened. So again, it's just odd. Um, well, it's a, it's another fantasy bit. And doesn't McCartney suddenly shout out, Don't do it! it well, it's, it's, yeah, it's just... As if he's sort of getting too wrapped up in the dreams within his own dreams and yeah. is forgetting how much of it is, is actually happening. I... Eh, I don't know. I don't know. At this point, I was kind of losing um, patience with the... Even the characters are getting confused about what's happening in the film. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you know, they, they, they go outside and off they go and um, Bob discovers that his pickup truck has been scratched. And uh, so there is the hilarious scene where he picks up a terrified bloke and you go, oh, well, that, right. So what's he going to do? Beat him up? Throw him in the Thames? Are we ever going to mention this again? No. OK, right. So. Um, I, and I mean, there's the, the punchline to that is he, he grabs him, he lifts him off the floor and says, right. Which insurance company are you with? Yeah, yeah. And, it's just, and uh, that's all you need. Just gag and you're done. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's it's exactly. It's just again, again that thing of it's just not been. It, it's a polish away from working, that. Mm. But it it just feels kind of a bit rushed, a bit first draft, basically. That's I think that's my my objection to it. Um, Paul heads to the studio for an interview, and the. He's asked some very bland questions. I mean, they're really like, like going live. Um, Where do you get your ideas from? So I thought I thought there's a couple of things that I think are quite interesting about this. One is that he goes to the BBC and it's Broadcasting House. Oh yes. And there's a sort of gag about them getting lost in the building and being taken down to the studio. What I noticed, um, apart from the fact that the great Arthur Cox is the uh, sound engineer uh, who I once interviewed uh, because he's in two Doctor Who stories. He's in The Dominators and The Eleventh Hour. Uh, 
one in 68 and one in 2010. Um, uh, but but the thing about Arthur Cox is he, he wasn't a young man when he did this film and none of the BBC people are young. They're all older than McCartney, I think. Hmm. And there's something there about the music industry not being a young person's game, I felt. I mean, if if McCartney had turned up in a studio and it's all teenagers and they're asking him those bland questions because they don't know who he is, there's a gag there. There's a, a thing. But what he's done is that he's the young one in this situation. He's the dynamic one in this situation. And the broadcasters don't know what they're talking about. They don't know who he is, you know so that it's a kind of fogey thing so that the kind of vibe is um what you get on the train in a hard day's night where there's the old man who you know objects to them you know being young basically and it's that kind of i fought a war for the likes of you exactly yeah yeah and and just it's it's such an odd um it's such a sort of i don't know again it feels like there's a point not quite being made here um and he does the song and then kind of he's in the albert hall well he he plays uh, for no one and then eleanor rigby and then we transition to the albert hall into the into the whole fantasy sequence it uh, I've written it down in, in quite a lot of detail. In fact, it fills an entire page of my notes. Um, but um, he imagines that it's it's Edwardian times, and he and Linda and Ringo and Barbara and their their friends they're going for a picnic on the lake. Yeah, and this doesn't relate to the Albert Hall. It's not like the Albert Hall bit is in Edwardian times. It's a no. So we flash from one fantasy sequence into another with no connection between them um i actually quite like the albert hall stuff i thought there's something where you know the the line all the lonely people as it's panning across empty spaces and empty seats that's a nice juxtaposition of idea and image which is sadly lacking in a lot of this film and then we're suddenly out on this island and they're all going for a picnic on boats and stuff and but that doesn't relate to the song unless it is meant to somehow um it's a it's a and and the the people in it are all playing edwardian counterparts of the people they're playing in the narrative already so it doesn't reveal anything or tell us anything or you know suggest kind of new ways of looking at what what's been going on um so, I mean, as, as I said before, it's just, you know, the, the nearest you get to that is the fact that Linda takes old fashioned photographs on a tripod mounted camera because we know that she's a photographer. It's not something that's really featured in the film before, um, but that's the only kind no. of new bit of um, business other than the fact that the men have different facial hair from the rest of the movie. That, that's kind of it it's a, a very odd um and then then after um ringo and the wives are drowned mccartney wanders around a cemetery in the snow seeing them as ghosts with 
Linda McCartney's ghost on a horse for no reason. Um, while there's a sort of radioactively glowing tape of his album, which seems just as significant as a loss as his wife and his friends, which I felt was a bit crass. Um, it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe this was a real dream. Maybe this was a dream that McCartney had, but I, you know, by this point I was just kind of, I'll just get on with it. Um, I'm afraid <laughs> it's very pretty looking, well, he, but, uh, you know, but a bit chocolate boxy. And yeah. Bit... I mean, the, the shot of, um, there's a static shot of McCartney running away from the camera through the snow, through the through the forest, which I thought was my favourite shot of the movie. I thought very striking and and moody. Um, but yeah, it's it's an approach that could have worked if it was thought through and was uh, its own separate entity. I think, but it's it's not. It's not advancing the story. It's not telling us anything fresh. It's not giving us any fresh insights, really. We do get to see Ringo going over a waterfall, which is, I think, almost worth watching the rest of the movie. But um, we then transition to Victorian London, which is very much the London of Jack the Ripper, I think, the way it's portrayed, of um, uh, Paul pursuing Harry and and Big Bob. So Big Bob is characterised as being Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist, which I liked. Um, The idea of... Uh, bits of culture bleeding into his fantasy I think is an interesting concept that isn't pursued and might have been worth doing given that he is such a cultural figure and it's built around culture and creativity there's that's an avenue that that might have been possible um Rath has a I mean Rath of course fits in perfectly in Victorian London with his little uh, Victorian sunglasses and evil moustache and uh, it ends with um, Harry being murdered on the steps of I think St Paul's Cathedral yes and, my guess um, would be that's the, um, those steps and those colonnades are, are actually UCL which is uh, where a lot of these things ah. tend to get filmed um, oh, yes, it's, of often du- it's often doubling for the Bank of England or the National Gallery or uh, <laughs> um and um, so the, uh, the the executives gather around Paul as he cradles Harry's body, and Paul comes back to himself in the studio, and the uh, the engineer says, "Right, that's it. You're finished. What are you going to do now?" And and everybody's left, and it's kind of yeah. what, <laughs> nobody said goodbye. Nobody said, "Oh, he's having another one of his self indulgent dreams. Let's just we'll be here all night. Let's just go." Um, yeah odd and then he's supposed to be going home for dinner um but he doesn't he leaves the bbc uh drives to past battersea on his way to the east end um you know just which way are you going um band on the run plays because obviously he's not on the run and it's just him on his own so it's not a band um odd choice of music and he turns up at the old justice uh, a pub which um i assume the name is ironic because they're trying to find out whether harry is guilty or not um and he goes to see ralph richardson and his monkey uh yeah ralph richardson playing old jim 
Now, Richardson died in October 1983. So uh, I suspect that this scene was shot before that. Um, so you have a kind of sense of when this movie must have been made. The weather um, suggests it wasn't in the middle of summer. Um, so I wonder how close, you know, what state was Richardson in when he did this? He he He's made up to look a bit shabby and old, but I wonder if this is a a scene shot by a an elderly and sick man. Um, and there are some odd decisions about that like like the fact that there's a monkey there um there uh, maybe yeah. i'm reading too much in it but i thought that both richardson and mccartney were a bit wary of that monkey um they uh keep their distance a bit so um yes i, I wonder if the monkey was well behaved on set um they are i i am told by actors that monkeys are not always brilliantly well behaved um and well, well, we've, well, we've all seen Nope by this point, so uh, uh, that's, you, you, haven't, you haven't seen it yet. That'll become clear. But, uh, but it, it's uh, well, I, I was just trying to think how I could say anything without spoilers. But I think um, again, what is this for? What's it about? Richardson kind of has this poetic speech, but what what have we got? when McCartney leaves that we didn't have when he arrives you know where, where, where does this take us again it's quite fun it's quite um, it's a bit different but you know what's it for I, I've seen an interpretation that uh, Jim is meant to be a stand in for McCartney's own father okay okay yeah um, and again so it's about grounding him in the past and in values and in, you know, trusting his instincts and things. Again, I'm not sure that's particularly clear as it's as it plays out. I, I You know, again, I just kind of he goes and listens to an old man and then walks out and says bye. Yeah, um, I'm not sure it changes anything. I'm not sure it changes any of the stakes or anything. Um, if. Richardson, Richardson had said well you know when did you last see him oh I saw him he was on his way to Broad Street well have you looked there you know that, yeah. that would be that would be taking us somewhere or you know why haven't you have the police looked there or whatever um, all of those kind of things of um, yeah again just a plot I mean, there's, there, there's, yeah, there's ways of around that, even even in just changing dialogue. You don't have to say that he was going to Broad Street Station. Say, oh, I'm just going home. Or, I'm just going back to, to say where he lives. And say, oh, well, we'll go and search there, and he's not there. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, which which train would he take? How would he get there? Okay, he'd go by train. Which train would he take? You know that sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. All of those kind of joining the dots. Um, and. And then McCartney gets back in his car. So we were down towards Tower Bridge. He's going to Broad Street. And he goes to Broad Street via St Paul's and Buckingham Palace again. Uh, again I mean, again, this is a 
long and winding road. Um, that's a Beatles. Absolutely. Um, and and while he's taking this extraordinary, circuitous, indulgent route through London, magical um, mystery tour, almost. Yeah, yeah. His uh, I like what you've done there. Good work. Um, his <laughs> Thank you. his wife and dog are sat awkwardly with their dinner guests, wondering where the hell he is. Not unreasonably. Um, mm. He's got a telephone in his car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we get, we get. I mean, I, there's a there's a lovely shot of him. So he drives through Piccadilly and Soho, and there are women on the street who kind of give him a look. Again, it's just odd. What what is is that that he's still got a connection to ordinary people? Is that him laughing at London life? I, I don't know. Um, but I did like. I think they must have been up centre point to shoot the uh, the high angle shot of him driving up St Martin's Lane um, I felt a uh, a bit of a pang for the old foiled bookshop sign as he drives past um, ah. uh, uh, that shop has now moved and that building is no more but um, and then as I said earlier he, he drives past Broad Street or he, he you know he has this sudden moment of Broad Street and, and there's no it, it's there's no great intelligent deduction there. It's just a sudden memory um, of a thing that he and other people all saw. So why hasn't anybody else mentioned it? Um, and he skids up to Broad Street and goes to have a look round while another lonely night plays. Um, no more lonely nights. No sorry. more. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Which was the? It was the film's lead single. And was nominated for both a BAFTA and a Golden Globe. Yeah, and it's uh, it's got Dave Gilmore on the soundtrack from um, Pink Floyd, and you know it's quite a banging. I machine. like it. Yeah, yeah. It's an odd thing to be playing as he explores a empty station, but then again, if you're going to show a clip of a film about Broad Street, have it have that title song or that that main song play over him at broad street i I can see the logic of it in a very prosaic not very imaginative not very imaginative way um Mm. and while all of this is going on the 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 bad guys the bad money guys are uh, turning up at the office with their paperwork because of this contract that's not really how contracts you know, if a contract says midnight, you don't have to turn up at midnight to sign it because the contract already says that. Um, well, they're just really excited about moving in. Yeah, it's it's you know, and um, John Bennett is still wearing his sunglasses at midnight in an office because um, that's what bad guys Cause do. Because he's e- he, well, he's evil, isn't he? I mean, he should be wearing black gloves as well. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Um, and then again no deduction just from instinct McCartney who's sat dolefully on a bench notices that there's a big box next to him which is his tapes Um, and they've just been sat there for presumably for hours and hours Um, yeah for for 24 hours you know he doesn't he doesn't go to lost property or any of those sorts of things no well, I mean, at, at, at this point, it's it's five to eleven, and having reached Broad Street, ah, this is the place to be. He's just wandering around aimlessly, not even as if he's looking for anything. 
just ambling around the nearly empty station. And then he just goes and sits on a bench on the platform. And imagine, he imagines himself as a busker performing yesterday at Leicester Square Station. Yeah, I love that. I thought that was great. And I wonder if, because he's disguised, I wonder how much that is set up and how much he did actually just apparently, go as a busker. Apparently that was done with him completely anonymously, filmed Verite style, and he did get a bit of cash from passers-by who didn't recognise him. Fantastic, fantastic. That, that, that delights me. Um, that, that is, I think, my favourite bit of the whole film. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, oh, there's a better film in McCartney has a breakdown and a McCartney impersonator and a busker is picked up by Brian Brown and has to record an album in a day. Well, that, I mean, that's like a, a third of the plot of uh, Baba Hotep, where it turns out Elvis was replaced by an Elvis impersonator. And in the present day, elderly Elvis is living in an old folks home with a black man who claims to be John F. Kennedy. And they have Gosh. to fight a mummy who's dressed as a Wild West cowboy. I have seen that film. I have seen that film. It, wow. Yes. And it's Bruce Campbell's greatest performance. He's amazing in that film. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary film. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, again, again, a ghost of a... Just in that scene, there's a ghost of a better film. Um, there's, there's, you know, there's, the idea of the idea of McCartney playing somebody who isn't Paul McCartney but has to pretend to be Paul McCartney immediately just pleases the hell out of me. I think that's some, that's something quite funny. Um, anyway, anyway, it, yeah, that's that's a very it's a very sort of Beatles type idea. The, I mean, the whole idea of them having a second band that would tour for them, like Sergeant Pepper. The idea of there being a, a counterfeit, well, and it feeds into the whole Paul is dead thing. Oh, there's rumours yeah, yeah. that Paul's died and he's been replaced by a lookalike. Oh. You know, you could do all sorts of gags where Ringo doesn't notice, and then we reveal it because it's, it's not—it's not Ringo. You know, it's it just all of that. It, all of that would be just funny. Um, and he pulls pulls off the mask, and it's actually George. Or he, or, or he just goes home, and there's there's the real Ringo star tied to a chair. You know, it's just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 just being a bit more daring and being a bit more free with your imagination and creativity not being it's bound just, by the, you know, these limits it's just a bit it's just a bit more wit i think it's just a bit funnier um i think i think that's the there's a lot of sort of sad sighing in this film and not enough cheeky chirpy yeah he's he's really sort of settling into being a not bitter, but somewhat grumpy middle-aged man, but yeah, one who still just... thinks that he's young and young and with it, with with all the old fogies at the BBC who are all you know approaching their payoff day. Yeah, I think I think he's just got this idea of of him being the plucky, relatable, you know, protagonist. The underdog, I think, is the is the thing, and he's not an underdog. He's not, and that's that's at the heart of the problem of this film. He's not a. He's he's living a very comfortable, very successful life, and mm. the problem he faces doesn't seem all that that much of a problem, you know. So it's it's, which is which is why it's important to to have him on the back foot. Uh, his company's going to get taken over. He'll he'll lose his back catalogue to Michael Jackson, um, and um, 
no one, no one likes a winner. <laughs> yeah. So, so he he finds the tape. He finds that Harry's been stuck in a shed, uh, and obviously nobody has heard him crying out for help for however many hours. Well, how um, many how many trains how many trains at the time was Broad Street running per day? True, true. But um, uh, you know, and there's a they, they have a good old laugh about the fact that Harry thought that the shed was the toilets and he got locked in um, and has been unable to get out or climb out a window or any of these things. Um, mm. And then McCartney slides down the banisters in delight to go back to the car where he's got his phone. Now, bearing in mind that the clock is ticking, who does he ring? He rings his wife and she then rings the office. Yeah. Why doesn't he just ring the office? Um why not have everyone all together at the office? I mean, uh, why not have? Uh, uh, yeah, well, yeah. So, oh well, he, he's 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 so worried about the business. If he's going to go anywhere, he'll come back here. So, Brian Brown's there anyway. Yeah, Linda and Ringo ought to be there as well with the you know, the various other characters. It makes sense for everyone to all be together for yeah. the climax of the movie. Yeah, it's it's again just an odd thing that, but but at the last minute they found the tape so the good guys celebrate the bad guys slink off into the dark um and then um mccartney wakes up in his car having arrived at the apple building uh to get on with the day's this. events and there's no there's no you know a, a um I was thinking about, you know, uh, uh, you could have done a final twist where what he walks into is that the tape has gone missing so that the mm. dream is a premonition in a kind of... Uh, Dead of know. night. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that kind of thing. And, and, and then, you know, crash zoom on Paul McCartney going, oh, I know where to look. Or, you know, or, or don't yeah. worry. Or he says to everybody, because they're all having a flap on, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Or something. But no, no, um... Hold up, lads! I've got a great idea. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, I've um, and into the credits. He walks into the building. The camera just pans up into the sky, and the credits start, and the and the song plays. And it's very uh, oh, Uh, right. Are we stopping there? Yeah. What What have we? It just cut. What what has any of this changed or taught us or taught him or revealed or whatever? Not very much, and I think that's a that's a. I mean, you know, there, there's a big problem with sort of eighties pop, like with older performers. You know, David Bowie was talking about how successful he was in the eighties, and yet didn't have any respect for the music he was making because it's not really, you know, about anything and. And I think McCartney is in a similar... I think he knows he's stuck. And this film is full of a sense of that restlessness and a sense that there are things that he's trying to kick against that he can't, that, that he can't kick against, that, that you know, there are machinations that he's powerless to change. And yet the film doesn't really grapple with any of this. It's kind of aware of it, but doesn't really get hold of anything so it's all it's all a bit intangible and 
and I think it's a real shame because there's there's something every now and again there's something really interesting visually or suggestive of of how he's feeling or that that says something about the creative process or or, or the industry at the time but it never quite goes anywhere um and so yeah i found this film really interesting and it's fundamentally really unsatisfying um and and what a shame what a shame i agree there are there are lots of germs of interesting things. There are lots of ideas here and there that are thrown away and never properly developed, as you say. And it just seems really ironic that in the later stage of the Beatles, they pretty much had a blank check. Creatively, they could do whatever they wanted. They didn't have to worry that much about meeting deadlines or you know how you know getting mus- you know musicians in from anywhere and they could uh, the, the white album is we can do what we want so we're going to do half an album each and put it out as a double disc they had you know gave creativity there it's free reign here McCartney isn't doing that he's it's it's such a narrow idea it feels like this is a film about Paul McCartney that could have been made by like your dad. Like it's it's like a normal like a, a normal person's idea of what a Paul McCartney film would be, rather than a film made by Paul McCartney, the Oscar-winning you know, greatest songwriter of the twentieth century. Yeah, I I don't it, think it's it, I don't it, think it's, it's made very... by someone who doesn't have sufficient. Yeah, it's it. There's no. Um... There's no great insight into actually what his working day is like. Um, this isn't, this isn't, you know, it's not like Get Back where you get a real sense of this is how he worked, this is how he thinks, this is what it's like to be in that room when he's composing. And I think, I think part of the reason I find this film so disappointing is I was hoping for a sequel to Get Back rather than to a sequel to A Hard Day's Night. Um, and it's not, only a sequel to A Hard Day's Night. It's a disappointing one. Um, well, that's the problem with legacy sequels these days. You know, they spend so long keeping you waiting for a follow-up, and then when they do, it's always disappointing. <laughs> Thanks to Simon for making time for this recording. His latest novel, The Further Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, The Great War, is available now from anywhere that fine literature is sold. Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, with over 100 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnos is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, the love you take is equal to the love you make. listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.